the system created by the internal labor markets was very rigid. And in an economy that was where there's a lot of flux and uncertainty, there's a, a, a real clash between the rigidities of the, the institutional internal labor markets and the requirements of the economy. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Michael Piori, who is the David W. Skinner Professor of Political Economy Emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work using institutional and non-traditional tools for the economic analysis of labor markets. Mike, welcome to The Work Goes On. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's begin uh, the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, I grew up partly in Washington, D.C. and partly in New York City. Uh, I went to high school in New York City, but we ha- and I was born in New York, so I feel definitely in New York. What did your mom and dad do? Uh, my dad was a physicist. He uh, worked for the uh, Navy at uh, the Office of Naval Research when we were in Washington, and then he was director of research at IBM. And my mother was a health economist. She had been a union organizer before I came along. Yeah. <laughs> and, and married to someone who was uh, executive at IBM. It sounds interesting. Where did you go to high school? I went to the Riverdale School in, in uh, New York. Now, I know you went to Harvard. How did that happen? I don't know. I, I Once you apply to Harvard, I, that is, I, <laughs> I put it on my list of colleges, even though I definitely didn't want to go there. But one, <laughs> once you get into Harvard, the pressure, and this is true not just of me, but of everybody I've ever known who had to face a choice, the pressure becomes intense for you to go to Harvard. It's a place that people think you're crazy to turn down. Yeah. Where, where did you want to go? You know, uh, I think I wanted to go to a state university. Like my parents went to Wisconsin, and I was I Wisconsin or even Berkeley would have made me very happy. But in the end, I stayed at Harvard. I was at Harvard um, for an undergraduate and my graduate education. Well, now you must have liked it enough to stay on. Well. <laughs> It's Harvard. I, I actually don't like Harvard. Uh, <laughs> and I finally, when I finally left, I thought, if I don't get out of here now, I'm never going to get out of here. That, 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 that's a, a, a very blunt comment. Yeah. And those were always appreciated, especially by people who didn't get into Harvard. Now, I, how, who was your, I think John Dunlop was your dissertation advisor. Yeah, Dunlop was my dis, uh, advisor, uh, supervisor. There have been other people that we've had uh, interviews with who've had him as an advisor, including Dick Freeman. I'd met him a few times. I always thought he was kind of a formidable uh maybe scary person. What did you think? Uh, well, I think, you, I mean, I think I share those, those, those feelings. Uh, although 
he brought to to the table or to your education a range of experiences and places he had been involved with that nobody else had. So you felt that that is, if you were doing theory, somebody else could be teaching theory, uh, <laughs> but nobody else could teach labor the way John taught. What was your dissertation about? Uh, my dissertation was about the impact of technological change on manufacturing, a subject that that has come around again and again. But uh, but I worked with Peter Doringer and and we were working on internal labor markets and and in the end uh, out of our th- theses we produced this the internal labor markets book. I wanted to talk about that first. You you've before we get to it, I, I actually have a copy right here: internal labor markets and manpower analysis. You you probably would change that last half of that title if you're definitely doing it but it would be more a more <laughs> awkward title <laughs> but this copy by the way is from our library it's actually you'll be interested to know it was uh, alan kruger's copy and uh, he he read it so uh, at least it's it looks like it's been read by somebody anyway i'll come back to that but i wanted to ask you before we get started something i'm curious about you've written i don't know how many books maybe seven or eight and uh, this this book, the Internal Labor Markets book, actually a hard copy of the original in the well in the in the with the new introduction, it costs a couple hundred bucks. You know, getting a it's a collectible item here now. It's more than a book. Well, it's gone through several different editions, and uh, and it, it it may be available in different at, at different price points. Can I ask you? So one, th- I, I I mentioned this because I'm curious. Before we start to talk about that book, you have mostly communicated. There's some exceptions, I know. I saw your the dissertation article that was in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, but generally speaking, you have communicated in economics through books which is pretty unusual for an economist. How did that come about? I actually don't know. I mean, uh, that, that is what I was producing was, was kind of long manuscripts uh, that were too long for uh, a journal. I mean, I would say that journal articles um, work best when they're inside the discipline because you, 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 you use a shorthand to explain what the problems were, what, where you fit into the broader, you know, the literature and so on. All that's in, in very short space. Whereas if you're, if you're making an argument that is um, orthogonal to the mainstream of the discipline or something, you have to explain a whole lot more. And so it, that is, it's awkward to do that in a journal and uh, uh, it's more natural to do it in a book. In the form of a book. Yeah. Now, the internal, it, it is true, the internal labor market and manpower analysis book does kind of ha- have a little bit more of the character of a, of a, a s- articles put together. But you know what? The, I, I think that the basic idea in this, there, there's, I have, the copy I have here is with the introduction. Uh, in 1985, so there's there's uh, it was a little bit later, and there's a quite a, that very long introduction, uh, second introduction to the book, that explains the basic ideas, but also goes through some critiques that were made of it. C- could you explain very briefly uh, the notion of internal labor markets and the duality that you take to be a part of that? 
Well, the duality was a vehicle for later research, sort of emerged from uh, a later research. The basic idea of the internal labor markets, well, I mean, I guess you go back, it was written at, at a time uh, when markets, that is, ec- economics was about markets. Uh, it was about markets and Keynes. And the internal labor market book argued that the critical parameters of behavior uh, were those which governed internal uh, allocation of labor within the firm. And that was done administratively rather than in response to market pressures. And and so one had to understand the internal dynamics of the um, labor market within the firm. I don't, I don't think actually that anybody disagrees with that now. One of the interesting comments you make in the introduction is, the question of how it came about, what, what's the reason why internal labor markets work that way. But I think the idea that big structures, and, and, and I realize that when you were writing, many of those big structures were unionized. Uh, today, of course, they're not. But even a big company like Google or any of the Silicon Valley companies has a internal pay structure, which has come to light, actually, in, in a way that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, the way it's come to light is in the course of uh, some antitrust cases. One in particular involved uh, high-tech Silicon Valley activities over a decade ago. And one of the ways in which economists establish the impact of, say, no poaching agreements is by the notion that the entry-level jobs or the or the jobs that where, where there's movement from one company to another, if you can suppress that, you ultimately can suppress wage rates in the whole structure so that those that idea actually has come back to life in a in a somewhat different form. Have you did you ever think about it that way that it would mean that there could actually be anti-competitive behavior that would actually be much easier to enforce? Well, I don't think I would have put it in quite those those terms, but I think that the whole economy operated in the 1950s and the early in the early 60s. Uh, it wasn't just wages which were administered; it was prices that was were administered, uh, relations with uh, suppliers which were administered. The whole structure of um, of the price system was basically an administered system. And I, I guess I, you know, I'd have to go back and rethink that whole set of set of issues. But I, I think the notion that you could understand what was going on here through through markets in some ways was or is a mistake. That is, if you look back, say, at the 1950s, the whole wage price structure was relatively rigid. That is, the key relationship that we look back on now is the fact that worker compensation rose at the same rate as, as labor productivity. Uh, I think it's difficult to uh, explain that uh, through a set of institutional arrangements that involve the, the market as the key territory in which all this was taking place. That, that, that's a very interesting point because that, that used to be something we assumed was the case. In fact, I remember closing models of aggregate behavior by assuming that productivity growth was equal to real wage growth. And of course, that relationship doesn't exist anymore. Right. And, and I don't think that it, that is the relationship now. There's this kind of nostalgia for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. <laughs> and I remember, you know, Bob Solo explained it as a natural phenomenon. It, 
was a product <laughs> of nature. Uh, I mean, I mean, for me, that was uh, that is the fact that it turned out not to be a product of nature is a profound uh, revelation because it, it w- must have been a product of something, and so I think it was a product of an institutional a set of institutional arrangement, uh, which I've been sort of reviewing for a, a, another set of set of reasons. The reason that productivity went. Uh, worker compensation and the aggregate rate went up at the same rate of productivity. It was also that the wage structure was pretty rigid. If you raise the wage, and this was a basic lesson of Dunlop, if you raise the wage of bricklayers in in uh, Boston, you were in the end going to have to raise the wage of br- bus drivers in Los Angeles. <laughs> that's pretty far. That, that's an extreme example, but I... It is, but that was the... <laughs> I, I mean, and I actually think it, it probably wasn't quite true, uh, but it, it does emphasize the nature of Dunlop's theories of wage determination, which I guess... I inherited. It is. It's an interesting point, actually. I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it. That it may have been that that natural evolution of the real wage as productivity was something that was not market driven, which which is uh, kind of very interesting to contemplate. And I think the the uh, the dual structure, of course came about, I think, because the idea was that there were some markets that, that didn't operate with internal labor markets, and that was supposed to be the other sector, as I understand. Right. Well, I mean, I, I guess the argument was that we ended up developing or that I've ended up, I'm not sure where it comes into the, the things that um, that I've, I've written, but the system created by the internal labor markets was very rigid. And in an economy that was where there's a lot of flux and uncertainty, there's a a, a, a real clash between the rigidities of the, the institutional internal labor markets and the requirements of the economy. And that in the end, a set of, of arrangements uh, were created in which uh, the variable portion of demand was uh, kind of subcontracted, if you will, not literally necessarily, but sent off uh, to this other sector of the economy. And the other sector of the economy consisted of workers who were uh, a lot more flexible to use and a lot less committed to employment uh, in a particular job or place. That kind of conception of the internal labor market really took its – it went further. It went into business schools because now when people talk about – human resource administrators, they're basically talking about people who administer an internal labor market. And that, that's part of the curriculum, I think, in many programs where you learn about uh, human resource allocation. You wrote so many books that I, and I wanted to cover a little bit more than just this topic. One that's hot right now, super hot, you actually wrote a whole book about immigration. I did. And that's one of my favorite books. Is it? Why is that? Because it was so revealing to me, actually, to study immigration. I took a leave um, after I was uh, in the faculty for four years, and, when I, and, uh, and I worked in Puerto Rico as an aide to the governor. And when I came back to Boston, I thought, Boston is full of Puerto Ricans. 
Is that because I was attuned to it or is something else going on? And so I started to explore uh, the jobs that Puerto Ricans were holding and so on and who held those jobs beforehand and and what was going on. And basically it appeared that uh, employers were recruiting Puerto Ricans for the jobs in Boston. And they were recruiting them from the uh, most backward parts of Puerto Rico, something I never would have known had I not been there myself. And it seemed like this backward labor force was somehow necessary to an industrial society. And what argument of the book was that it's necessary because it, these people are temporarily attached to Boston. They're basically short-term migrants. Uh, who are going to go home. And because of that, they don't care about job security nearly as much as national workers do. And the result is that they're willing to accept insecure jobs and, and employers kind of shoved off the insecure part of their of demand to this uh, secondary labor force. Of course, Puerto Rico is an unusual example because you don't need a passport to go from Puerto Rico to the United States. But the immigration issues now are really much more connected. I will come back to Puerto Rico, by the way, but in a, on a different, slightly different topic. But the, the hot issues now are about other Latin American countries uh, who seem to have people that are also trying to escape. But I guess they hit, they fit into your categories uh, of of potentially workers who might take jobs others wouldn't. Well, it's partly that, and if you interview a lot of the Central American migrants, they don't think of themselves as permanently settling in the United States, despite the pictures on the evening news. Uh, migrant labor force is dominated by young men uh, who are sort of planned to work in the States for a, a short period of time, maybe a couple years, and then with the uh, savings to go back and to Guatemala, say, and invest in uh, their own uh, farm or so on. Now, you have this other stream of migrants, which are family reunification in a sense, or that are coming with small children and are running away both from violence and from uh, uh, natural disasters. But buried in there is this temporary migration. And, and while in Puerto Rico it was easiest to be temporary, was also true of Mexican. I mean, in the, uh, in the old days, even today, there's an enormous flux uh, on the Mexican border of people moving back and forth. A lot of people don't realize that we have this Mexican migration project here, which is long, has a long history of collecting data on Mexican migrants. They do it from the Mexican side, so there's, not a, there's no, nothing illegal about their coming to the U.S., but in reality, there are very few Mexican migrants anymore. The people that are coming, they come through Mexico, but they're, they're, they're a Mexican problem because of that, but they're not Mexicans who are coming through. It's others, and, and that's, that's absolutely right. Did you, did you talk much or contemplate the problems of the people that are displaced in your book about migration? No. You mean in the, in, in the States? Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a different story and a more complex one, and one that I've never tried to, I mean, I have my hunches, but I've never really tried to do, uh, work that, that story out. You, you, let, let's uh, take another book. You also did a book 
And uh, for a while, I thought you had written it with my old colleague, Richard Lester, but it turns out that Richard K. Lester is not the same no. <laughs> as the Richard Lester we had at Princeton, who you probably knew. But you, this book was about innovation. You wrote it with an engineer. That book is not, strictly speaking, I wouldn't say in the mainstream of labor economics. It a, it's a, seems to be a much broader topic. What brought you to write about that? MIT has done uh, has had various what they call commissions uh, that worried about the um, future of technology, particularly in manufacturing and keeping up with the well in the Joneses, which at the time it started out was the Germans, then the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> now it's chi- uh, China. R- Richard. Uh, Lester ran a research institute called the Industrial Performance Center, and they really were the centerpiece of a lot of these um, commissions. And I was affiliated with that group. So they, they had finances and so on to look at projects in general. And we argued in the second industrial divide that it was the end of mass production and that product innovation was going to be much more important than process innovation. So I became interested in what's the nature and organization of product innovation. And uh, so we, um, we, given that the funding was there, we did a series of case studies of the product innovation, looking at several companies in the same area. Uh, The one that was most uh, kind of emblematic of that series of research was studies of uh, the cellular telephone. I I could go in great length to uh, what we got into in terms of, 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 of theory. It turned out that one could think of product innovation as having much more to do with something like the evolution of language than of the way we generally think of innovation as a, a product that you uh, invest in and get an output out of. It's interesting because, it, of course, the, the evolution of cell phones is still going on. And uh, some people think it may have come to a kind of an equilibrium without a huge growth in the various features. So you did mention the, 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 second, the second divide. And that, so we've actually covered that book too. You, there's one book I have never, never read or even tried to find actually that you wrote, which is really, I would say, kind of more general than anything we've discussed, which is about individualism. Yes, that actually, if you had to pick my favorite book, that would be Beyond Individualism. And it basically tried to develop an argument that economic activity was a communal uh, activity and that uh, it evolved much more like language than uh, it did by exchange. But that, in a way, that's an, that grew out of this, for me, the study of, um, of innovation. Because the question that was raised by innovation is where do new new ideas come from? How do they get disseminated, and so on? It's much more that uh, that uh, in the uh, tradition of Schumpeter, I think. Because that's a, I think, for an economist, a book of that type is pretty unusual in that it's uh, at a much more general or abstract level in some dimensions than what we normally see. Well, we're coming to the end of our podcast, but I have one more thing I want to ask you about, and I, you've led into it, the, and that's Puerto Rico. Uh, I actually read your article in Foreign Affairs uh, about the 
organization that was set up to, uh, I guess, uh, deal with the debt crisis that Puerto Rico had come into. And I hadn't quite realized why you knew so much about it, but now, you now explained that you had been working for the governor of Puerto Rico at the time. Can you ex- explain what was the point of that article? But also, I'd be curious, Puerto Rico is still in some state of flux and difficulty. How well do you think the U.S. government has handled that? I'm out of touch with Puerto Rico, so I'm, I hesitate to really give a definitive uh, uh, opinion. Uh, I think that the Trump administration, they, well, I mean, all right, so the way to put it is, is is that there were a lot of problems with the government of Puerto Rico, not so much uh, corruption as cronyism in terms of awarding contracts and, and, and a failure on the part of a series of governments uh, to control the uh, issuing of the national debt, of the Puerto Rican debt. Uh, and then when Puerto Rico got hit by a series of natural disasters, then debt, which pre- previously had seemed tolerable, uh, suddenly became intolerable and you had sort of a run on the the equivalent of the a run on the bank. And uh, and then Trump sort of never gave, uh, let Puerto Rico get the kind of aid that uh, states uh, uh, were getting to deal with natural disasters. So all of those things accumulated. The economic studies said that the problem was that we uh, imposed the U.S. minimum wage on on Puerto Rico, and the wages gradually rose until Puerto Rico, which was once the low-wage enclave within the U.S. economy, uh, became too close to the mainland wages, and at the same time, the uh, opportunity to enter the U.S. market uh, that Puerto Rico had exclusively as a low-wage area was extended to the rest of the world, in a sense. And so Puerto Rico became, on the eve of these various disasters and uh, kind of the corruption and catching up with it, it was unable to really to attract uh, enough industry to keep full employment. The one thing that I think th- that diagnosis leaves out is that you had this enormous movement of people back and forth between Puerto Rico and the states, and they were essentially working in similar jobs in Puerto Rico that they were in this in the states and. So you, you had people coming back from the states because, for whatever reason, uh, from jobs which were paying uh, $15 an hour to Puerto Rican jobs, which were paying $5 an hour. And it, and just that, that disparity between the wage rates on similar jobs was just sociologically unsustainable. The pressure to raise the wages towards the... Uh, towards the U.S. level was socially too strong to resist. I, I always use Puerto Rico when I teach about labor economics because of the f- free mobility. It, it's, uh, we have, there are a few other, I don't know if you want to call them colonies of the U.S., uh, like uh, Guam and, and uh, American Samoa and so on that have that similar ability. Of course, they're very, very small for workers to freely move without passports uh, between the two. Well, Michael, it's been just a pleasure talking to you today, and I, I really appreciate your coming on, and uh, I, I thought we had a, a wonderful conversation. Our guest today has been Michael Piori, the David Skinner 
professor of political economy emeritus at MIT. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we will speak with Robert Hall, the McNeil Joint Hoover Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics at Stanford University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.